Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. This episode is sponsored by the InterVarsity Press Book Drop. The IVP Book Drop is a monthly book club perfect for readers who want to grow spiritually and hear from a diverse range of voices addressing today's most important cultural topics. Okay, so for like 10 bucks a month, you get one book sent to you every month, and that includes shipping. They start you off with Esau McCauley's best-selling book, Reading While Black. And then on the second Monday of every month, a new book will be sent to you. Books written by emerging voices along with well-known uh, authors who are both diverse in ethnicity and in gender. I love InterVarsity Press. They always publish books that are intellectually responsible, well-researched, and also very readable and like focused on the church. So m- many of my guests on the show, I don't know if you know this, uh, have published with IVP. So Lamar Hardwick, Sandy Richter, Lori Krieg, George Yancey, Tish Harrison Warren, and, and... Press and Sprinkle. I don't know if you know that, but I have a book out with IVP. Anyway, super easy to sign up. Just go to ivpress.com forward slash T-I-T-R. That's ivpress.com forward slash T-I-T-R. Hello, Theology Nara listeners. As you may have noticed, I have finally begun to host various sponsors on this podcast. You know, you've heard some ads that I've given, and I want you to know that I simply will not. I refuse to endorse any kind of product, book, organization that I actually don't believe in. So we've had a lot of people hit us up for sponsor this, sponsor that, and we've turned them all down. And, you know, we get offers to sponsor all kinds of stuff and we heavily screen everything that comes our way. It has to be something that I believe in. And there's a lot of great stuff out there. So I hope this will be helpful for you as you are thinking about various resources, organizations, programs, or whatever. Um, I will only uh, talk about things that I personally believe in. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you would like to support the show, you can do so through patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. The info is in the show notes, or you can support the show by leaving a review or sharing this episode or other episodes that you have enjoyed on your social media outlets. Spreading the word does help let others know about this podcast. I am starting today a four-part series on the birth of Christ, uh, the Christmas story. And I've invited four different New Testament scholars on to talk about the Christmas story from a maybe a, a different angle that the average Christian hasn't considered yet. And so my guest today is the one and only Dr. Craig Keener, who is a world-renowned New Testament scholar. This guy has written so many high-quality, rich, highly acclaimed academic books, including a four volume commentary on the book of Acts. I'm pretty sure this is like the longest commentary on any single book that has ever been done. And Craig is a humble Christian and a um, just an incredible uh, New Testament scholar. So I'm excited to have him on the show to talk about the birth of Christ, beginning with Luke chapter two. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Craig King. All right, friends, I'm here with uh, Dr. Craig Keener, uh, somebody who I have known from a distance for a long time. We've had a couple uh, meetings here and there uh, at various conferences, but man, I'm, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this. It's, it's my privilege to be with you. The, the most important, the most pressing question I have in my mind before we even jump into it is, do you know how many pages, total pages, your Acts commentary is? <laughs> I think it's 4,500. 
No, that's the big one. There's a there's also a one volume one with Cambridge. Oh, you do have a one volume one. Okay, I was wondering about that. So for if you yeah. guys, I mean, if you guys want to, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, you can Google Craig Keener Acts commentary. It's a very large four volume commentary on the Book of Acts, and the footnotes alone. I mean, there it's. How long did it take you to write that? Or is this kind of like, I mean, it's hard to quantify how long it took you to write something like that. Yeah. I mean, obviously the research had been going on while I was doing other projects too, because whenever I'm going through ancient sources, I take notes on whatever will be useful for anywhere in the New Testament or sometimes anywhere in the Bible. But the writing of it plus the indexing of it took maybe 10 years. Oh my word. Wow. Wow. That's why. I'd be young if I didn't done that. <laughs> so I, we're going to get into the Christmas story because that's you know we're doing a short kind of mini series on having different scholars on talking about the Christmas Christmas story. I've got um the three other people I'm having on are Lynn Kohick, uh, Joey Dodson, and uh, Mike Bird. So we're they're all going to um, talk about the Christmas Christmas story in different ways. But um, before we get into that, how, how your ability to produce not just books people can write books pretty quickly but your your ability to produce academic work that's so highly researched high quality how how do you do that like i, <laughs> I and i don't even know if that's if you can even answer that you probably just like it's just what i do but i mean it's 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 uncanny to say the least um <clears throat> it it does take some concentration like I don't normally watch TV or, <laughs> or or sports or things like that but I mean I do exercise yeah. but um, but I started taking notes back around 1980 uh, when I was a sophomore undergrad um, and originally it was just going to be for background you know so when I would preach I would have this material on hand but I was taking it on index cards we didn't have computers back then this is how long ago it was and I, and I just um, kept them organized by passage or sometimes by topic and uh, eventually by the time I got to well by the time I was able to just type things into a computer um, by then I had about 100,000 index cards and so Whatever I do now, I'm building on all those decades of research, yeah. and just, just uh, I'm 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 actually ADHD. So okay, in in on the positive end, it helps me think multidisciplinarily, if that's a word. Yeah, because um, I'm always you know jumping to something else. But on the on the negative end, obviously, it makes it harder to concentrate. So uh, and especially hard to organize. So I okay. have to. I have to do that in a separate step. I organize, and then once I have it organized in order, then I, then I write, okay. and then I go back and, and revise it. Thank God for computers, because yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. back in the old days it was a lot harder. Yeah. So, so you, I've heard this about you. Actually, it's good to hear you say that. It's good to confirm the rumor. So you you from an I mean night that forty year almost forty years over forty years ago, you've been keeping track of like original source material so that. Uh, if I even said like Joseph and Aseneth chapter three, you would probably like know what I'm talking about there, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> Not off the top of my head. That's why it's written down. Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've read Joseph and Aseneth, but I don't remember chapter 
what's in chapter three per se. Now, if you ask me what's in the third chapter uh, about Joseph in the Bible, now that would okay. be a lot easier. I mean, that's because Joseph's story starts in chapter 37, obviously. But yeah, yeah. anyway. Yeah. But you, you're so familiar with the background material. I mean, you, you spent so many years in it, but I mean, it, that's, it seems to come so natural to you, you know. Um. Yeah. Um, and, and the way I did it originally, it was just, you know, as I'm reading through it, I'm thinking, okay, what would this shed light on in the New Testament? And so um, it disciplined me to just think of that as reading through the ancient sources, mm-hmm. but to peg it to, like, I don't actually teach a course in New Testament background. I, oh, I just wow. love teaching the Bible, huh. <laughs> but I bring in the background as mm-hmm. I'm, you know, as I'm teaching on a particular passage or something. Okay. Well, one more thing, and then I'll, we'll get into the Christmas story. Um, one thing I've really appreciated about you, Craig, is is your your commitment to Jesus as a Christian seems to be your primary identity. And even though you're yeah. a renowned New Testament scholar, like it seems like that's not your your primary identity. Does seem to be like you're a Christ follower. Um, and you're not going to remember this, but we were at a conference. I want to say about eight years ago in San Diego, and we were we actually hopped in a cab together. And me and another, I think I might have been like in the middle of my PhD program. Maybe, maybe no, I think I was shortly out of it. But you wouldn't have had a clue who I was. And me and my friend who were riding the cab were like, "Oh my gosh, we're hopping in the cab with Craig Keener." And you, you probably don't even the entire car ride, cab ride. The driver, I think, was from I want to say Ethiopia. And you spent your the entire cab ride getting to know the driver and. uh I, I was just blown away. I was like, y- you, yeah, it was just like, that's such a Christian thing to do. You know, it's like actually get to know the cab driver and you, you were so genuinely interested in this person. In fact, the driver was from the same place where your wife is from. Is Ethi- is it Ethi- is your wife Ethiopian or? No, no she's, from, she's from Congo, Brazzaville, but, um, she, she was a refugee. And so, um, it gave a point of identification with, you know some of the troubles that that Ethiopia has faced over the okay decades. So. Okay, wow. So anyway, that has been a great model uh, for me and and other scholar friends of mine who also strive at least to to keep our Christian identity above our academic identity. Um, all right, let's jump into the Christmas story. You, you mentioned in in the, our email exchange you, you had some thoughts on. Uh, Luke 2. Um, yeah, I, I'll just ha- turn you loose and have you jump in and, and would love for you to highlight anything that maybe maybe some Christians might not be as familiar with. You know, you grow up in church hearing the Christmas story over and over and you get kind of used to it. But I would love to kind of explore and, and, and unpack maybe some elements of the Christmas story that the average Christian could maybe sit in church for years and not really um, maybe fully appreciate or be, uh, be aware of. Sure. Uh, yeah, I love Luke too. I, I love I love all of it, but um, Luke two actually maybe to set it in in a somewhat fuller context, um, thinking in terms of Luke Luke one because you know the first four verses Luke Luke gives his historical preface says you know here's here's how I did my research here's how I got my information and so on, uh, kind of like what we talked about in a sense, but but then um, immediately Luke. Luke goes into the account of Zechariah in the temple where the angel Gabriel appears to him. And then 
uh, after that narrative, I, I think it's like verse 19 or so, the angel Gabriel appears to um, Zechariah, mm-hmm. and around verse 26, the angel appears to to Mary. Mm-hmm. And you, you have this, uh, this parallelism, because in each case, the angel appears, in each case, they're shocked, in each case, the angel has to say, don't fear, uh, and then gives him the announcement uh, about the, the child, says this child will be great, gives a name for the child. Um, but Zechariah responds with with unbelief, and Mary responds by, you know, be, be it to me according to your word. And so she gets blessed, and Zechariah is struck mute for a while. And he's not a bad character. He's a good character. Uh, you know, Abraham and Sarah, they doubted too. But the, the contrast here, you've got this aged priest in, in, in the holiest site of all in the temple, uh, and uh, male, and then you've got Mary, who's female, she's a virgin, probably given that culture, she's in her mid-teens, maybe even younger, um, and, and uh, so she's kind of a nobody in, in the eyes of that culture. She's in a, a nowhere place, you know, in, in Nazareth, as opposed to in the, in the Holy Temple, you know, contrasting status in every way, and yet she comes out greater in the story. And and then when you hear Mary's song when she's with Elizabeth, uh, Mary, you know, echoing the words of Hannah in the Old Testament in First Samuel, um, how God has exalted the lowly and brought down the proud, and that kind of sets the tone for where Luke Acts is going. You know, ultimately in the Acts with the Gentiles and so on, but already in Luke two thirty two or so with Simeon saying a light to the to the Gentiles, but. Coming back to the main passage, you have this in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 14, because here it seems like the agenda is being set by Caesar Augustus. Mm-hmm. You know, he sends out this decree, okay, everybody go where you own property, and and uh, there seemed to have been, at least somewhat later period, the tax censuses were about four, every 14 years, but maybe not all at the same time. Uh, in different places, but it, you know, it was to raise raise money for the empire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so here's this big person, Augustus, who was, you know, I mean, he's got these brag sheets posted in inscriptions all over the empire about, look, I did this for the empire. I did this, you know, I celebrated mm-hmm. all these triumphs. I gave all this, all these donations to Rome. Never mind that a lot of it came from taxes. But uh, <laughs> so he's this big figure. But he's not the hero of this story, you know. He's the he's he looks like he's the the one who's who's moving it along, but it's really God who's who's moving things along. And you have this contrast because Augustus, on his birthday, was hailed as the savior of the empire, the bringer of peace, what came to be known as the Pax Romana. Uh, Augustus was. Um, Hailed by the powerful, the, the local priests in different uh, imperial temples, they would hail him as a god. And these imperial priests were drawn from the elite. But Jesus, as he's born, he isn't born in a palace. He's laid in an animal, animal feeding trough, uh, probably in a cave out behind the, the, uh, the home. And then he's not hailed by earthly choirs of elites. He's, he's hailed by 
heaven's choirs. Mm-hmm. And he's the real savior. He's the real bringer of peace, peace on earth, mm-hmm. goodwill towards humanity. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> he's the, the announcement isn't sent out to all the elites. It's sent out to shepherds mm-hmm. who were basically mm-hmm. a despised group through most of the Roman Empire. Uh, they were considered rugged and ragged and smelly and um, and often associated with ruffians and and so forth. They were, uh, of course, in the Old Testament. You know, you have David, you have Moses, you have Amos, and, and so on. I mean, they they can fulfill great roles, but for elites and and mostly for urban people in the Roman Empire, including in Judea. I mean, we have this in in sources uh, that probably go back to the Pharisees, <clears throat> people look down on shepherds, but that's that's where God chose to, to reveal this good news first. And we see that right from the start, just like the Bible says elsewhere, God is far from the proud, mm-hmm. but he's near the lowly mm-hmm. and the broken. And if we want to seek his presence today, that may be where we're most likely to find him. So this this setup of contrast between the powers to be in Luke two, and then the birth of the true king is such a, yeah, it's such a blatant like like in your face kind of contrast. But I love I've never yeah. I haven't thought about this before. You you've linked it to chapter one with even the very very beginning where there's contrast being set up, and and you're saying that this sets up a theme that's going to go all the way through Luke Acts the the. Of, yes. of, of perceived powers and then the lowly being exalted and that um do, do you see that in luke more than the other gospel is it highlighted more particularly in the other gospels or um or is that it's kind of hard to quantify i guess it's, but yeah no it's it's already in mark it's already in matthew sure. but um i think luke highlights it even more yeah um now in in his in his second volume, it's not quite as evident because we don't think of Gentiles being marginalized. I mean, Gentiles back then wouldn't have thought of themselves as marginalized right. either. But within the church in the first century, they were, uh, especially early first uh, er, the early Christian movement, they were a marginalized group. Hmm. Uh, so uh, ethnically marginalized in the church, culturally marginalized. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think even the book of Acts carries on that that theme in some respects. Well, even in, and I, I nervous mentioning the book of Acts in your presence <laughs> as if I know anything about, I, I, well, I guess I'm, I'm quite, I'm curious, like it seems to me in Acts, the latter half of Acts, especially you seem, you, you see what seems to be a growing number of converts that are from mm-hmm. the powers, more wealthy mm-hmm. aristocrats, um, Gentile leaders and stuff getting converted to a this upside down kind of kingdom. Would that be accurate that you see that kind of you see a growing number of kind of more wealthy people getting impacted by the gospel, converted by the gospel? Yeah, and I think it's also interesting that Luke dedicates his um, his two volume work to Theophilus, Mm. uh, and he calls him most excellent Theophilus, which means he was. A person of status in that society. Now, I think it would be a mistake to say, like some people have said, uh, Theophilus is the ideal reader of Luke Acts. I mean, he's just one. <laughs> you didn't 
you, when you dedicated the book to somebody, it didn't mean that was the only person you were hoping would read it. Okay. But still, Theophilus at least has some fairly elite people in his audience. And yet Luke is the, uh, did I say Theophilus? Uh, Luke has at least some fairly elite people in his audience. And yet Luke is the, is the gospel where you have the, the story of Lazarus and the rich man and where you have the story of the rich fool in Luke 12 and, and so forth. I mean, he, he hits harder on the theme. It's Mm -hmm. already there in, in other, other gospels, but, um, Luke is really emphatic about it. So he wants, he wants to make sure people understand that the gospel has implications for how we treat one another. Do do we know anything else about Theophilus? Like he calls him most excellent And that. Are you saying that phrase most excellent intrinsically means that he was of a high social status? Um, It's not just like, Hey, my good friend Theophilus, it's he, that is that more of a specific term? (laughs) Most yeah. excellent. I think it's I think it's the Greek word krastiste or kratiste, okay. uh, but it's uh, it's also used when Paul addresses, um, or maybe it's not Paul, maybe it's um, uh, <laughs> the the uh, Kiliarch, the Tribune in Jerusalem, uh, when when he addresses most excellent Felix. Yeah. Uh, no, no, Felix. Yeah. Felix actually was a freed person. He wasn't actually of the normal status of governors. But when you address somebody as most excellent, normally that person was of a higher social rank. Okay. Uh, the knight class or, you know, the equestrian class or, or, or higher. Yeah. So, so given his, that he's addressing it to Theophilus, um, and, and given the fact that the latter part of Acts kind of has a growing number of these kind of high social status people coming into the faith, is that, would you say is that is that is it too much to read into this that that's strategic that Luke is ultimately saying hey Theophilus you can also be a, a convert um, or is is Theophilus a convert or is he a seeker or do we even know? I, th- I think he's a I think he's already a believer because um, Luke Luke says now concerning uh, I'm 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 confirming these things you've already heard oh yeah so Theophilus has already heard a lot of this. No, it's possible he's a seeker, but I think it's probably more likely he's already a believer. But yeah, it would encourage him. He's not alone in in that. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 social cost was a lot higher for members of the elite mm-hmm. to become Christians because you you were a public figure. Everybody expected you to be worshiping the the local gods, the the emperor, and so on. And it would be very conspicuous if you if you weren't. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Luke Luke has just like like you have in in Mark ten and Matthew nineteen. Luke, Luke also has this uh, in Luke eighteen the the rich ruler who um, is told by Jesus that he has to give up everything and, and mm-hmm. follow, but. Uh, Luke also has other statements of that. He has uh, John the Baptist telling people in, in Luke three eleven or so, uh, here's how you, you express your repentance. Uh, if you have two cloaks, give one to the person who has none. Or uh, Luke twelve thirty three. this is also in Matthew, where uh, he's, he's addressing the disciples and he says, 
Um, sell everything you have, mm-hmm. give to the poor, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And in 1433, where Luke uh, re- reports Jesus saying, uh, talking about counting the cost for the kingdom, even so, none of you can be my disciple unless they give up everything mm-hmm. that they have. Now, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean we lose all our possessions at the moment of conversion, but we lose our ownership of them at the moment of conversion because if Jesus is Lord, He's Lord of everything we are and everything we have. All our time, all our resources should be for Jesus. And so uh, Luke 18 kind of climaxes that. And then in the book of Acts, you have uh, people saying, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But the the implications of that as it goes on, we see the, the way that the Christians live and they, they serve one another. They're meeting together and it says that when people were in need, they shared their possessions. So uh, in Acts 2.44 and 45, and in Acts 4.32 to 35, and then uh, you you have uh, the Philippian jailer, uh, what must I do to be saved? Mm -hmm. And Paul and Silas tell him, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And we may think, oh, that's lowering the standard. Just believe, but it's not really lowering the standard because if you really believe in Jesus, if you really stake your life on the truth of his claims, I mean, the the jailer actually risks his job and probably his own freedom by taking Paul and Silas out, washing their wounds. They wash him in, in baptism. He washes their their wounds. Um, I mean, that's a that's a radical thing. A jailer could get in big trouble for what he did, yeah. but he's committed to follow Jesus. So throughout, we see really radical discipleship. Mm-hmm. As, as people follow Jesus, they realize this, this is really true. This is worth everything. This is worth forsaking our other gods, mm. and this is worth the social cost. And I think the early Christians, probably most of them weren't elite, but when they saw somebody who was elite, it's like, um, hey, look, even even some of these people <laughs> are believers. And I think it was a big encouragement to them. It's like a, what the, the, the shape of Christianity, it doesn't really resonate with elitism or right. high social status. And yet it's 100% open to somebody of a high social status that's willing to give up yeah. that status, which that that is, that is, yeah, you put yourself in the, in the shoes of, first century high status Roman, you know, in, in a culture where kind of like, I guess, similar to places where there's like a caste system today um, for, for somebody who is up of a forward caste or upper caste like that, that's a huge, huge sacrifice to join a movement that's primarily almost like sh- maybe designed for, I don't know if that's too strong of a term, but like it, it has a very kind of low caste, low social status kind of flavor to it, you know, like that. Um, you have to give up a lot. That, that almost goes back. I mean, it's not, that, that flows right from Luke 2, though, where you have the king of creation yeah. <laughs> flipping the whole yeah. thing upside down by the very nature of his birth. Yeah. And and, and just like what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1 about the message of the cross, mm. you know, it, to, to the wise of this world, it's foolishness. To the powerful of this world, it's weakness. Mm-hmm. But God chose to do it that way so that we couldn't boast not only just in our works, we couldn't boast in our wisdom, we couldn't boast in our status. Um, there, there, but, 
but Luke Acts does show us that there are some rich mm-hmm. people who made it through the eye of a needle yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, right. to change yeah. the language of Luke right. 18. That it is, it is everybody's welcome. Uh, but you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna follow Jesus, um, in in the Roman Empire, it was like saying, "Yes, I am. I am loyal to this person who was executed for high treason on the charge of of uh, having claimed to be a king." When we're only supposed to acknowledge Caesar as as Lord, and so hmm. it. Uh, it was sticking your neck out to follow Jesus. Even and as I think ahead, as I think ahead to like our future in the next couple of weeks, you know, Christmas Eve services or just our ecclesiastical rhythms of celebrating the birth of Jesus. How, I don't know, like my mind's just kind of going like, it seems like we should kind of go out of our way really to remind people in our liturgies around Christmas of this upside down nature of Christianity as kind of like, this is such a, a main heartbeat of the birth of Jesus. Um, and I don't know, there can be some creative ways of going about that. I think. Um, yeah. yeah. T- can you talk to us really briefly about um, where Jesus was born? Um, you know, most translations yeah. say something like an in, um, but I don't know. I don't know if the, the, that's the best translation of the of the Greek word. Um, I forget what it is. Um, Kataluma. Kataluma. That's right. Yeah, it's only used I think one other time in Luke to refer to like a spare room. I think right. Um, or yeah, I think maybe the upper room or something like that is. Uh, but but yeah, it's not the word that's used for in in Luke chapter ten in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a. It's no, it, it normally doesn't mean an inn. It can mean a spare room. It can mean a room, um, and probably, yeah. Some pe- some people like, hey, no, you mess up our sermon because we want to preach that he-, he was turned away by the innkeeper. Well, no, it's probably worse than that. He was probably turned away by the relatives. Yeah, uh, they're going back to where they own property. There were probably uh, probably some relatives living in in the house where they where they come back to in Bethlehem. Uh, a lot a lot of people in Nazareth. Actually, most most. Uh, Galileans, whether they whether they were first generation or more often second or third or fourth generation, um, were immigrants from Judea. So it's not surprising that Joseph has has uh, reason to travel back to to Bethlehem. But um, <clears throat> the house may be too crowded. Maybe a bunch of other people have come back, and so uh, it's it's better for for Mary to give birth uh, right. in a in a quiet place, uh, I guess quieter in terms of people. I suppose you have some of the animals there. Um, <clears throat> sometimes it's envisioned as like a, a lower level uh, as part of the house, uh, which which uh, you know the animals could be there. On the other hand, uh, tradition says that it was in a cave. Okay. Uh, out behind us, but a lot of a lot of houses in Bethlehem were actually built out of caves. So, you know, it's possible that both are true. In the, uh, I think it was around the year 135 or so that the Emperor Hadrian was going through Judea and desecrating holy sites. Um, he built a temple, Venus, on the site of the Jerusalem temple. And when he got to Bethlehem, the, as, as the story goes, the local inhabitants said, uh, well, this, this cave is where, um, where Jesus was born. And so 
uh, he he erected a a grove for I think Adonis on on top of it, uh, made it a a pagan site, which uh, later of course it got reversed. But what that would suggest, if that story is true, is that the memory of the site goes back to to within a century of the time. It might well be the actually remembered site uh, from from relatives there of, Wait, of where Jesus was born. So do we have knowledge of where that site is today? Is this the place where if you go visit Bethlehem today um, and, and they take you to the place where Jesus's birth is kind of commemorated? Are you saying that this geographically is a good case to be made, that that was the original site? I, I think a good case can be made. I mean, the, it goes back to within a century wow. of the probably goes back to within a century of the of the events. Now, it's not as clear as, like the site of the Holy Sepulchre yeah. for, for his tomb and his resurrection. That one, I think, is clear cut. Okay. But uh, the one in Bethlehem, I'd just say it's probable. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that does, yeah, of course, we're going on tradition, but that or, or, tradition that, that early um, that it is pretty significant. And yeah, I spent some time in Israel. And I remember, yeah, this, the Holy Sepulchre does seem to be a pretty good, a pretty good, it matches yeah. all the geography, right? Of being outside the city, yeah. at least that's the way the city walls were constructed in the first century. And um, yeah. the, yeah, the early tradition. And and so, okay. So, so just to summarize the story then, so, so Joseph and Mary uh, travel to Bethlehem. They have relatives there. They probably go to a house of a relative who says, there's no room in our cataluma in, in our in our let's just say some kind of spare room. So they go out to where the animals were, possibly a cave um, or maybe an outside courtyard or something. Is, is there anything? Mm -hmm. I, so this is speculation. But Mary, you said a teenager most likely is visibly visibly pregnant and not married yet. I mean, she's. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's speculation, but could there be some, and, and then in an honor shame culture, I mean, I don't think her Holy ghost story is going to win a lot of people over. No, no, God did this, you know, <laughs> like, could there be something in the relative yeah. that's like, I don't know if I should be housing this immoral cousin of mine or, you know, married cousin or relative or whatever. Like, is that, is that, I know it's speculative, but could that be a possibility too, that the relative just didn't want to house them under the roof for fear of housing an immoral person. <laughs> I don't know. It's possible. I mean, uh, this is before the shepherds show up with their revelation and it's, it's well before maybe up to two years before the Magi show up. And, um, so it's, it's possible. The question is, was she showing, uh, because it says that while they were there in Bethlehem, uh, the days were fulfilled that she gave birth. So it's not like in the movies where she, uh, I mean, I understand the movies need to do it this way, but it's not like in the movies where she actually went into labor as they got to Bethlehem. Uh, uh, she she went into labor sometime uh, after they got to Bethlehem. So we don't really know, but yeah, if she was showing and they were just betrothed at that point, that would be scandalous. And that would be more than speculation that that would be scandalous. It might be a little bit better received in, in Judea than in Galilee, uh, certainly a small town like Nazareth, uh, which maybe just had a few hundred people. 
Okay. The uh, the tradition, and this is a later tradition again, but the the Jewish tradition, uh, the best information we have in Galilee, your betrothal would last about a year, and if you were to be together at all, you had to be chaperoned. In Judea, the betrothal would last about a year, but you didn't have to be chaperoned, and they had more unexpected pregnancies <laughs> for some reason <laughs> in Judea than in Galilee. Yeah. Uh, Galilee seems to be a bit more conservative in that way, and certainly a small village like Nazareth, which, again, later Jewish tradition regards as a very orthodox village. An inscription shows that uh, a, a whole group of priests settled there after the destruction of the temple. I wouldn't have guessed that Galilee would have been more conservative than Judea. That. Well, so some parts of it. I mean, actually, Upper Galilee would be probably really conservative. They're, they were pretty much Aramaic-speaking. Lower Galilee, where Jesus was from, was more um, bilingual, probably. Okay. Um, but, but still, you know, if you're from a village in Galilee, yeah, it, it could be pretty conservative. And and all, all evidence suggests that it was it was very conservative. Um, the urban areas tended to be more open to other ideas. And so you had Tiberius and Sephorus in Galilee, but okay. in, in Jerusalem, especially, I, I may be saying things your, your hearers aren't really interested in. I probably shouldn't talk about all that, but, um, I have a very engaged audience who appreciates depth. So no, okay. feel free. I mean, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you you mentioned Aramaic speaking. Do we know, or what? What is your best, I guess, guess? And and uh, Craig Kuter never just guesses; it's always based on some level of evidence. But uh, what did Jesus speak Aramaic, Hebrew, a bit of Greek, all of the above? Or what, do we know anything about what Jesus spoke? Uh, obviously, there's some debates on this, but the majority of scholars believe that Jesus spoke Aramaic. Uh, we actually have some Aramaic phrases in the Gospel sure. of Mark uh, that, that Jesus spoke, and Mark Mark translates them for his his audience. Uh, the other the other Gospels usually just just do it in Greek. Well, you have some in John, and then uh, mm-hmm. Matthew does have the cry from the cross, mm-hmm. uh, although it's, it sounds more Hebrew in Matthew. But yeah, Jesus probably predominantly spoke Aramaic. But I think he was also conversant in Greek, okay. uh, as uh, you know, he, he's from Lower Galilee, which um, had more intercourse with the outside world and more more use of Greek. When he's when he's in Jerusalem, he's probably talking with you know when he's talking with the elite, maybe he's talking in Greek some of the time because that if we can gather from their tombstones. Some of the elite in Jerusalem, Greek may have been their main language, and okay. uh, there there was a significant use of of Greek in uh, in Jerusalem. Okay, what do we know about Jesus's and and Joseph's um, occupation? You know, we we often ref- you know a woodworker, or some people say no, he's a stonemason. I, if I I think the Greek word is tectone or something, which. Yeah. As I recall, and please correct me if I'm wrong, simply means like a worker with your hands. Like it doesn't specify what you're working with. Is that is that right? Or what do we? That's, what can we say yeah, about his occupation? 
No, that's that's correct. Actually, I, I had a student um, who did a paper on that recently, oh. and uh, I told him, "Hey, you could turn this into a dissertation." He did a word search through all of all of uh, Greek literature, and yeah, he said Tectone is just a builder of some sort. So it's uh, they probably couldn't afford a whole lot of specialization specialization in a in a town of about two hundred people, but also. When Jesus was fairly young, the nearby city of Sephorus was burned to the ground uh, during a, a revolt, a tax revolt. And immediately the governor of Galilee, Herod Antipas, set to rebuilding. And so there was a big need for, for builders. And you know, Nazareth is like four miles away. So that would be one of the villages where a lot of people would be builders. The, the fact that uh, Joseph and his, his uh, first son, well, first in my view, some people think that he had a previous marriage and children from the previous marriage, but in my view, um, Joseph, uh, Joseph was probably 18 to 20. Jesus was the first, first son, the eldest son. And so they probably continued traveling different places for, for building. They probably built, things locally. They may have helped to build the local synagogue where Jesus later gets in trouble. <laughs> mm. um, so, so when you say builder, does that mean like a, a wood with wood or with stone or both and, or do we know? It, it, it could be, yeah, whatever's needed. Um, the woodworking would be mainly for furniture. It would be for the uh, door frame, although the lintel would be built of stone. And then you had the timbers uh, is the beams for the roof over which you would lay thatching uh, and ultimately mud, uh, caked mud. But the walls in, in Galilean homes were mostly built of, of stones. Okay. Okay. So what, okay. So if he was building structures, which needed in Sephora's because it was burned down, it, that would be pri mm -hmm. primarily stone with some beams and other yeah. wood uh, edifices. Yeah. Okay. Wow, interesting. They probably did whatever whatever was needed. Don't you have some um yeah. my knowledge of ancient literature ends around AD 70. So in don't don't we have early Christian texts like 2nd 3rd century apoc apocryphal yeah. texts that, that refer to Jesus as a woodworker and and is that true first of yes. all and second of all does that is there any credibility to that as them drawing on tradition um I, I don't know if they're actually drawing on tradition or they're just inferring it. Okay. But uh, it, it, something that is interesting, though, is that they need to make some defense of Jesus' occupation. Like Celsus, an elite pagan critic of early Christians, said, hey, you're just following this guy who's a, who's a woodworker, a carpenter. And uh, they have to make a defense on that because uh, they're – their Lord didn't come from the elite. Hmm. Uh, although, although as an artisan, he was more, at least part of the time he was being an artisan, that was, uh, that still would differentiate him from the farmers who made up the majority okay. of the, of the population. Um, uh, carpenters, fishermen, tax collectors, and so on. Uh, they would not be, Probably seventy percent. It's estimated some some estimate as high as ninety percent of the population in Galilee would have been farmers. 
Okay. And the elites look down on those who just tilled the land for for a living, uh, unless it was their ancestors. <laughs> would would Jesus's occupation as a tectone have been also looked down upon, like a, um, or not as much as a farmer? Not not as much as a farmer. Okay. Uh, and, and by the way, I, I respect farmers. I respect carpenters. <laughs> My grandfather was a carpenter. So not, but but just in terms of, of what the uh, popular views were back then. But um, some people have thought that in Mark chapter six, where they say, "Isn't this the the carpenter?" <laughs> yeah. That it's like uh, it doesn't mean that they were more elite than than he was. But he's not a scribe. He's not right. you know somebody of high status. And they would expect, you know, somebody who speaks like they're educated to be from huh. a high status group where they could have enough uh, wealth to, to speak authoritatively and uh, to have the education yeah. to speak authoritatively and so on. Do, do you think Jesus, uh, one of us, Yeah, <laughs> he, was you, a, he was a normal, normal person. Do, do you think he would have been literate in terms of writing or reading Jesus? Uh, no, that Big debate. <laughs> there, there are different levels of literacy, but in Luke chapter four, I mean, he reads from oh, the from the Torah scroll, which is presumably in Hebrew. Um, I mean, in the diaspora, they would be using Greek versions, I'm, I'm sure. But um, so he can at least read that much if we if we take Luke seriously, which I do. But there were different levels of literacy. I mean, the the literacy needed to be able to read is not as high as the literacy needed to be able to write or compose. So, you know, the, the gospel writers, well, even then, I mean, the gospel writers probably dictated and <laughs> other people wrote it down. But, um, yeah, I think Jesus had some literacy, but he wouldn't have been considered a scribe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Go, going back to the Christmas story in Luke two or Luke. Yeah. Luke, I guess Luke one and two. Um, what are some key differences between this story and, and Matthew um, one and two? Um, and you've, you've mentioned a couple oh, sure. of them that the time is a little different, but what are some, as you kind of contrast, not, not, not contrast, maybe correlate these stories. What are some things we should recognize as we read these two together? If, if we just had Matthew, we wouldn't know that they started in Nazareth we would think they started in Bethlehem. That's where Matthew opens that part of the story. Um, That's, by the way, one reason why I think that Luke didn't have Matthew's gospel in front of him or vice versa. Because I think, you know, they would have, if they knew, if they knew the other one, they would have wanted to clarify so nobody would get confused. But um, so in, in Matthew chapter uh, chapter one, it doesn't say where Joseph and Mary are hmm. in one eighteen through twenty five when the uh, when when it's revealed to them. But in in chapter two, we we find out that they they are in Bethlehem because that's when the Magi come from the east. But the Magi coming from the east, um, Herod. Herod has heard from them about this child being born, but he's he wants to get rid of every every boy two years old and under. So <clears throat> the Magi may have been coming uh, up to two years after Jesus' birth. Hmm. So they don't get there at the same time as the shepherds. It's a it's a it's a different incident. And uh, Matthew is there therefore carrying the story on 
uh, a lot longer. You know, in Luke, they 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 travel to Bethlehem uh, after Jesus' birth. They go to nearby Jerusalem. It's about six miles from Jerusalem, so you know, not not that long of a walk for for people then, and um, some some of us today, <laughs> um, and. <clears throat> They offer the sacrifices in the temple, and maybe they go back to, to Bethlehem. Uh, well, presumably they do go back to Bethlehem. They settle in Nazareth later. Um, but Luke isn't concerned to it, – it's like in uh, – I think it's Acts 9.23. Luke, Luke uh, condenses like a few years yeah. by saying after many days, you know, so, <laughs> um, you know, we compare it with Paul's letters. So – you know, Luke is interested in telling the story. He's not interested in telling you how much he's leaving out because that's not really part of the. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to do that to tell the story. In in Matthew, we also have people who are sort of elite coming. I mean, the Magi were highly respected for dream interpretation, and they were highly respected for in the Roman Empire as astrologers and so on, and. Uh, that brings up an issue, you know, um, this one case in history, God reveals it to these people, the place where they're looking, but, you know, obviously uh, all sorts of divination were, were prohibited in the Old Testament. And Matthew's, Matthew brings out a different kind of contrast there because Herod the Great is, uh, is the one who seems to be in charge of everything in that story. And then the the Magi seem I mean like so innocent they're almost clueless about what Herod wants to do until the Lord shows them in a dream. Mm -hmm. And then you've got another group of characters who are Herod's wise men, the scribes and the chief priests, the uh, predecessors of the Sanhedrin, uh, well members of the Sanhedrin, but predecessors of the Sanhedrin of Jesus' uh, adult generation, and. And you look at how they act in the story. I mean, Herod wants to kill the male children. Well, who in the Old Testament did that? Mm. Pharaoh. Oh. And, and also Jewish people, I think of Antiochus Epiphanes, who did things like that. Mm. By contrast, the Magi, who are would be considered pagans. I mean, the only time the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses that phrase is for Daniel's enemies. So your expectation going into it is, King of the Jews, Herod the Great, should be a good guy, and these magi should be bad guys. But Herod acts like a pagan king, mm -hmm. and the magi, mm -hmm. three times it says they came to worship him who was king of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And the scribes mm -hmm. and the chief priests who know what the Bible says, <laughs> Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we're born in Bethlehem. They don't go to Bethlehem mm -hmm. like the foreign wise men do. Um, that's a sin that only people who know the Bible can commit, taking mm -hmm. its message for granted. And this fits Matthew's theme about the Gentile mission, you know, going from the four Gentile women in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 up through Matthew 28, 19, making disciples of the nations. So telling his Jewish audience, look, I know Gentiles have been mean to us, but we we have a mission to reach all the nations with this good news about 
the rightful king of Israel and the nations. Mm-hmm. So obviously the emphasis is different and, and both emphases are really important for us to, to remember today at Christmas. Wow. The rest of the year. Do, do we have, um, do we have any historical extra biblical evidence of, of the slaughtering of the male children in Bethlehem other than that resonates with what we know about the character of Herod the Great? Um, Macrobius talks about it in a kind of garbled account, but huh. Macrobius is writing centuries huh. later after the Christian story was widely known. So I, do, I don't weigh that too heavily. Yeah. Uh, but but in terms of the character of Herod the Great, and then sometimes people argue from silence, well, why wouldn't this be mentioned? You know, Josephus, uh, as he talks about Herod the Great, he's talking about uh, Josephus being a first century Jewish historian. Okay. He's talking about things that, that uh, he has from his source, which was a court source, Nicolaus of, of Damascus. So he knows especially what goes on in Herod's court. But in terms of Herod's character, yeah, he he killed a couple of his children who were falsely accused of trying to get the throne. He had his favorite wife strangled, who was falsely accused of committing adultery. And then later on his deathbed, about six days before he died, uh, he, he found out the son that falsely had accused the others that he really was plotting against him and he had him killed. So there's a probably apocryphal saying attributed to the Emperor Augustus, better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. Um, Herod didn't want anybody to challenge his yeah. his kingship, even on his deathbed. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was he's kinda like a textbook like narcissist, like clinically diagnosed, <laughs> you know, like just off the chart, yeah. like because he's so driven by fear, yeah. right? And self preservation. Yes. And yet that yes. turns out like externally is just this hyper, hyper bizarre arrogance, you know, but it's all out of this kind of insecurity and fear. And um, he's such an interesting, I mean, interesting might not be the best. Well, yeah, he's an interesting figure. I mean, for so many, so many reasons. Um, w- one more question that I've always been troubled with is, and, and I'm not, when I read the gospels, you know, there's obviously lots of, you know, tensions and differences and emphasis and stuff. And I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's the way I'm wired. I kind of appreciate, you know, like the different emphases and and different accounts. But the one that does, I guess, if there is any kind of tension in the Gospels that does trouble me, it has to do with the two genealogies in Matthew and and Luke. Um, Do you have any or maybe can you uh, just quickly summarize what those tensions are in the genealogies for our audience? And then do you have any proposed solution to this? (laughs) Um, now, some of the differences are are just like um, the the way that they're arranged. So I'll start with those little okay. ones first. But you know, Luke's traces it back to uh, to Adam, the son of God, and so probably implying something about Jesus as a new Adam, okay. um, Jesus revisiting you know where Adam failed and so on, and the and the you know the context where the heavenly voice says that Jesus is God's son, that, you know, it all, it all fits together there. Matthew, um, the way he starts the genealogy is really interesting because, uh, and actually the way he's, his gospel starts with this, this first line, uh, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the, um, literally it's the, uh, 
I think it's Biblios, Biblos Genesios, hmm. um, the, the book of, it's the same, same uh, title that came to be used for the book of Genesis in Greek, huh. based on uh, some of the genealogies there, where it would speak of the book of the generations of, and then it would list the descendants of the person. Hmm. But Matthew hmm. lists not Jesus' descendants, but his ancestors. Hmm. Because for for Matthew, he recognizes that even, even the ancestors depend on Jesus for their meaning and purpose in history. Um, also, the genealogies, uh, well, the genealogies differ a lot after David. It's like they trace it through different sons. Mm -hmm. Now, those who've tried to reconcile it say, well, you know, it, you could have just a couple adoptions in the line, and one is traced through the genetic, and one is traced through the adoptive line, and, and they're able to put it together that way. Um, I Again, it's another reason I think that Matthew and, and Luke didn't have each other's gospel in front of them. So I'm one of those people who still believes they they used a common source in addition to Mark, or, or sources in addition to Mark. Okay. But, um, but in terms of the the uh, what they're doing with the genealogies, Matthew arranges the genealogy into three sets of fourteen. Mm -hmm. That if you count them up, don't actually come out to exactly fourteen, all of them. Uh, oh. But you know, it's it's approximate. It's like a way of saying, okay. At this phase, this happened, this mm -hmm. phase, this happened. Hey, look, it's about time that something major was about to happen in Israel's history. So here it is. Um, and some some relate the, the 14 also to the numerical value of David calculated in Hebrew letters. I'm not sure if that's true, but um, mm -hmm. uh, one scholar recently did that with some other names in the genealogy and I thought made a pretty impressive case that mm. it only works in Hebrew. So it would suggest something before our current gospel of Matthew is a source that Matthew has to work with. But I also think it's interesting how Matthew tweaks it theologically um, because you've got uh, a couple Kings in the genealogy. We know what their names were from the old Testament and that's how they're translated in most of our translations in the genealogy. But, um, I think it's because the translators thought Matthew made a typo, uh, ancient scribal equivalent of a typo. Hmm. For example, you have Amon. Well, Amon wasn't a very nice king. He only lasted a couple years. He was a wicked king. But Matthew, the transcription is a little bit different. In Matthew, the Greek text doesn't say Amon. It says Amos, hmm. the prophet. Oh, yeah. And it changes one letter just a minor orthographic change. And then also you have the King Asa. He was kind of a so-so king, but his name becomes Esaph by adding one Greek letter, the letter phi. <laughs> well, who was Esaph, the psalmist? And so Matthew, with these minor orthographic changes, and rabbis did stuff like this all the time, mm -hmm. but with these minor orthographic changes, he's hinting at Jesus' spiritual heritage as well as his uh, well, I actually shouldn't say genetic heritage because it's <laughs> traced through the line of Joseph, but um, at, at his uh, spiritual heritage, that he's the heir not only of the royal line, but he's also heir 
of the mission of the Psalms and the and the prophets. The whole of the Old Testament bears witness to to Jesus. Okay. And normally you didn't mention women in a genealogy. And right. of course today we sh- we would, but back then they they usually didn't. And Matthew includes four women, mm-hmm. all of whom are either Gentiles or have Gentile connections. Three mothers, uh, th- sorry, three ancestors of King Solomon, uh, and uh, actually the mother, three ancestors of King David and the mother of King Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Bathsheba wasn't probably a Gentile herself, but you know Matthew introduces her as the widow of Uriah, Uriah, of course, being the Hittite. Okay. So all four of them. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. The women, the women in Matthew's genealogy are fascinating. And a lot of them, if not all, wait, all of them are, most of them, except maybe Ruth, have some kind of association with even sexual immorality. Um, not all these to their, yeah. you know, Bathsheba was at a, yeah, you know, I, her fault. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Ruth, probably, you know, probably not. But then there's, you know, snuggling up with Boaz in the barn. I'm not sure exactly what's going on there, but clearly Rahab <laughs> and and Mary's maybe reputation. So I mean, they they have kind of like a shadiness surrounding the reputation, which again, that I mean, this kind of it, is this designed to kind of project upon Jesus's future. Ministry. I mean, he also had a reputation of being a tax collector and a sinner, and he also very much, obviously, humanized women way more than your average first-century rabbi. Um, so, th- is that is that by design that the, the the genealogy in Matthew is trying to like tell us something about the life and ministry of Jesus himself? Yeah. Oh, I th- I think so, and I think it shows that Jesus. Uh, you know, right from the beginning, God cared about Gentiles, oh, yeah. um, but also the the the, uh, the moral things. With Ruth, she's definitely an exception to that because I mean, she was she was actually highly respected in Jewish tradition. Okay. Uh, but you know, Ruth was a Moabitess, and Deuteronomy twenty three three says, "An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the Lord's congregation to the tenth generation." Wow. But you know, God welcomed her because she, uh, and the rabbis, you know, went through various things to try to explain it. Well, she wasn't a Moabite, she was a Moabitess and, and so on. But, but I, uh, and, and with, with Rahab, I mean, if you look in the book of Joshua, there's a, a contrast laid side by side between her and this Judahite mm. who, uh, he hid the loot under his tent floor, brought about the destruction of his family. She hid the spies on her roof, mm. brought about the deliverance of and so on. So her, her Gentile character is, is very much uh, emphasized there. And uh, Tamar, uh, presumably oh, right. as a Canaanite, it's really emphasized in uh, Genesis 38, but it's, it's, it's there. And yeah, and we already mentioned Bathsheba. So I, th- I think that uh, those address some themes that run throughout Matthew's gospel. So there are reasons why each one focuses on what they focus on. Mm-hmm. I think that Matthew and Luke probably had access to different genealogies, and I, okay. I have no way to say where it goes back before then. Um, and maybe it was adoptive lines. Again, I'm, 
yeah. you know, it, it's back before we have evidence to, to resolve it. It's, that, that, to me, is probably the most complicated uh, question yeah. in terms of comparing the Gospels that we have. I think so. Yeah, it's, so it's, you pick yeah. <laughs> it's the only one that kind of kind of bothers me a little bit. But that 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 does make sense. That access to different genealogies, and then you have some scribal things going on, and um, you know, generational leaps and gaps, and you know, they're they're not as clean cut as we sometimes make them yeah. out to be. Um, well, Craig, I've taken over an hour, at least by a minute or so. Uh, thank you so much for man. I just. Yeah, yeah, you're fun to talk to, and and you just carry a wealth of wisdom and knowledge of the scriptures. I I don't, I, I just so my audience knows, you know, this is both a, a YouTube um, uh, conversation, but also primarily an audio podcast. And just so my audience knows, like you don't have any anything in front of you right now. <laughs> like all the references that you have <laughs> mentioned are all from memory, which is astounding in and of itself. But uh, thank you so much for your yeah. example. <laughs> Well, thank you for being such an example of scholarship yeah. and, and faithfulness. So, yeah, thanks, Craig. But thank you so much. It's great to be with you. <laughs>